A Thoughtful Faith Podcast is a production of Mormon Stories and the Open Stories Foundation. All donations to A Thoughtful Faith are tax-deductible and go directly towards keeping the podcast alive and towards building a community of support for Mormons like you. To support the podcast or to join the community, please become a monthly subscriber today at athoughtfulfaith.org. Hello, and thank you for joining us for another episode of A Thoughtful Faith. I am Micah Nicolaisen, and I will be your host today. I am really excited to have with me the renowned Mormon blogger, Rock Waterman. (laughs) (laughs) Rock, thank you for joining me today. Oh, that's great to see you. Great to hear you again, I should say, Micah. Thanks. Thanks for agreeing to come on today. Um, I want to give our listeners a little bit of your background, Rock. Um, Rock Waterman hails from Carmichael, California, where he lives with his wife, Connie, of 32 years and writes his blog, Pure Mormonism, uh, which has been a part of the Blogernacle since 2009 and garners approximately fifteen to 20,000 readers a month. Um, though Rock is a devout Mormon, he can sometimes be a, <laughs> a polarizing figure <laughs> since, uh, since his views often conflict with the policies of the LDS Church and mainstream LDS culture. However, um, I know from my own personal experiences, I've met a lot of people who have a hard time reconciling what they feel in their hearts, um, whether it's morally or ethically, with what they see in terms of institutional behavior and policy coming from Salt Lake. Um, some of those things could be things like uh, Proposition 8 in the church's policies on homosexuality. Some of those things could be uh, range from gender inequality, uh, emphasis on obedience to church leaders, um, and even simple things like boredom in religious services, uh, the uh, correlation uh, program and department, and the sanitation of history and curriculum. And it even can um, affect things such as... Uh, uh, perceived past crimes on the part of the church, including you know stuff like the priesthood ban, polygamy, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And so, the reason I wanted to interview Rock for a thoughtful faith is because I think his perspective on Mormonism can be useful for people who struggle with some of these aspects of their of their Mormon experience. Um, in his blog, Pure Mormonism, one of the over arcing themes that permeate Rock's perspective is his plea to fellow Mormons to distinguish the institutional church from the gospel of Jesus Christ. And with that, distinguishing between revelations from God mediated through prophets from the opinions and policies advocated by fallible leaders and also relying on the Holy Ghost as a as a source of truth. So, We are certainly going to explore Rock's concept of pure Mormonism as we um, have this conversation, and we'll discuss some of the uh, specific admonitions that he promotes in his blog. Uh, But before that, I think, Rock, it would be great for our listeners to understand a little bit about your backstory and what are some of the key experiences and influences in your life uh, 
that have both shaped your perspective and led you to start this blog. So go ahead, tell us tell us what we need to know about Rock Waterman. Okay, well, I was raised in the church. I'm I hail from Anaheim, the Anaheim First Ward, and grew up in the church. Good Mormon family, uh, brothers and sisters, the whole bit. My uh, my experience in church, I think, was pretty typical, in that I didn't like church as a child. And I don't, uh, I didn't know any kid who did. Although as I got older, uh, and by older I'm talking about twelve, uh, as I got into uh, the Aaronic priesthood, I began to enjoy the associations with my peers. So church was not something I looked forward to sitting through the meetings, but I did look forward to uh, you know hanging out with my friends. So that's what the church was to me as a. As a young man, we moved to uh, Hawaii for three years. My father was a Marine, and he was transferred there. So we attended Kailua Third Ward from the time I was 9 to 12. Those were great years. I came back to Anaheim First Ward, and uh, when I say it, it was pretty typical Mormon. I think I was subtypical. I really didn't know anything. I, I, well, you know, my mother read to us from the child story of the Book of Mormon by uh, Sister Peterson, I think, her name was, and uh, you know, so we we got the standard primary. We understood the first vision. We understood that uh, the church is led by a prophet, and all of those things. But I really had no interest in history or theology until I got to be uh, well. When I was fifteen, I was in a road show, <laughs> and uh, I got my first laugh, and I was hooked. From then on, I knew what I was going to be. I was going to be an actor, and that was going to be my life. And I didn't realize at the time, for some reason, that everybody uh, since the turn of the century wanted to be a famous Hollywood actor. I thought that was some sort of a, a unique idea I had. That I was going to grow up and be famous. So anyway, uh, this is all leading to, to where I'm going. Uh, one day when I was 19, I noticed on the Ward Bulletin Board auditions were being held for a new stake play and this was going to be at the time there were there were stake plays that were issued out of Salt Lake City uh, that were done every year, standard script musical, usually dealt with things like the generation gap uh, you know and parents not understanding their kids and kids not understanding their parents but this was something entirely different This was this was a big budget musical about Nauvoo and uh, I went in and I auditioned. It was held, I think, uh, the auditions were held in the Relief Society room. A fellow by the name of Thor Nielsen had been hired to uh, direct this this thing. It was written by uh, Elizabeth Loring out of Washington. And our stake had decided to fund this project. This was, uh, this was back before Saturday's Warrior, even. This is around 1970. And uh, so our stake was, was funding it, and they were... Selling the tickets, and uh, it's a big deal. Full orchestra, large cast, and it was a musical about Nauvoo, and it was really quite good. So anyway, we took this show to Salt Lake City. We did some performances there in Kaysville, and there was some talk of putting it in the uh, newly remodeled uh, Pioneer Playhouse. Well, so I was cast as Porter Rockwell. I'd never heard of this guy before. And... uh, so, of course, as the serious actor that I was, I started doing my research, and uh, you know, I learned that he was bodyguard of Joseph Smith. I caught 20th Century Fox's uh, 
movie Brigham Young from 1940, and uh, his role was played by uh, John Carradine, and man, that was the guy. So I was really into this, so I started learning about Nauvoo. I, I started taking interest for the first time in my life in church history. By now I'm in institute, and uh, the library had a full set of dialogue magazines, and one issue was devoted entirely to the city of Nauvoo, and there was a wonderful piece by Stanley Kimball in there that told all about Nauvoo. Anyway, from that point on, I was uh, I was knee-deep in Nauvoo and Missouri uh, church history, and uh, when I was 21, I went on a mission, and uh, up until that time, I still hadn't read the Book of Mormon through, so I bought myself a replica Back then, uh, that actually had the leather cover, just like the original. It cost thirty dollars, and this was in a day when uh, most church books were five ninety-five. In fact, there was sort of a rule: Deseret Book had this rule that they knew that Mormons aren't going to spend more than five ninety-five on on any book. So I bought this thirty-dollar book, and I started reading it, and it was much more interesting to read it in that format than the scriptures. I've I, always had a problem with the stop and start of verses and verse numbering. Uh, I don't know, maybe it was because I had to read out loud in my mind the number of the verse every time I came upon it, but it it interrupted the flow. So, now I'm a missionary and I'm really enjoying this, because prior to this I tried the Book of Mormon a number of times, like most kids, got bogged down in uh, Isaiah, 2 Nephi, and yeah, that's where it all stops. Um, the replica um, you're referring to, like the, uh, the 1830s yes. replica. Yes. And so, what was what was different about for, well, for those of it, our, our listeners that aren't familiar with it? All right, it's laid out in paragraphs rather than verses. Uh, of course, the numbered verses uh, that didn't start till what about 1880, 1870, 1880. Uh, I think Orson Pratt was the fellow who uh, who got that going but uh, up until then the the book of mormon was uh well it was laid out look kind of like a novel so you could read it in uh, a narrative style and you could follow this story and it was uh it was much more interesting to me than than the stop and start of the verses so i'm on my mission i'm reading the book of mormon and really uh really enjoying it the interesting thing and this is i think uh, an open secret with most missionaries a lot of guys hadn't read the Book of Mormon before their missions, and so uh, their mission is the first time they actually start reading. And then we tend to get bogged down with the work, and uh, we, you know, we've got to memorize the discussions. We've got to do the. Uh, we've got to learn all these scriptures. So, it's, I think it's very rare to actually finish the Book of Mormon straight through. I, I didn't finish it. I got, I got nearly to the end, but uh, you know, you get. Get bogged up with missionary work, but the interesting thing was, I really had a testimony of the Book of Mormon. But in looking back, I realized my testimony was more about how it came to be rather than what was actually in it, because I, I you know, like most people, and like I'm learning about a lot of members today, we really don't know what's in the Book of Mormon. We don't really appreciate it because. I think most of us have read it the way we were taught to do in seminary. Get that, get that chapter day out of the way. You know, have a goal of a certain certain amount of reading. So when you turn the when you turn the, the Book of Mormon into a chore, as it always was in Sunday school and seminary, then it's homework and it isn't pleasurable. 
So anyway, for the first time in my life, reading the Book of Mormon became pleasurable. When I came home, I got a set of cassette tapes and played that all the way through. And that was actually the first time I got all the way through on the Book of Mormon. That was uh, with cassette tapes. And, you know, it was to me, it was riveting. Where'd you serve your mission, Rock? Oh, I was in the Missouri Independence Mission, so that was really a, a coup for me. When I got my mission call, I saw Missouri Independence. Yeah, that was... That was my life at the time. So by the time I was out there, I knew a lot of the history and a lot knew a lot more about the area than the other guys who were there. So it was uh, my biggest regret was we couldn't cross the river over to Nauvoo. There was there was this one time when my companion and I were standing on the Missouri side. No, I'm sorry, the Iowa side uh, at Keokuk, looking over at Nauvoo, just thinking how cool it would be to go over there but my Nauvoo was a mission in itself and basically Nauvoo was a mission president and a bunch of missionaries running it and we would have been spotted right away and got sent home and, <laughs> but but I've always regretted that because if uh, you know I, I look back and I thought you know what what are they going to do send me home for going to Nauvoo well fine <laughs> so I kind of kind of wished I did but after my mission I did I did get to Nauvoo uh, which was uh, I can't tell you how I ached to see that city I was just really into into cool. all this. Cool. So, so what I'm hearing is, you know, pretty pretty typical LDS upbringing, and um, you know, I don't think your <laughs> your experiences as a, as a as a teenager are untypical. I think uh, I think a lot of us had a hard time getting into it um, as teenagers. I know I did, um, but then it sounds like you know the the play that you that you participated in sort of got you interested in church history, and that sort of uh, lit a fire that carried you into institute and got you got you on the mission. Is that a pretty fair summary? Yeah, yeah. In fact, uh, at the time uh, when I was nineteen, that's when I, we were doing this show, and so I actually at the time didn't think I would be serving a mission. I uh, we looked at that and said, I thought I said, well, this is my mission. But uh, two years later, when most guys are coming home, I I got the uh, I got the call uh, by that. You know, I got the spiritual call that this is something I wanted to do. So, so uh, I went a little older than most guys, but a little more knowledgeable too. Because by that time, even though as I mentioned, I hadn't really read the Book of Mormon, I was reading all kinds of stuff about it. I loved the Sperry symposiums. I was, uh, uh, you know, I just reading everything I could. I, I just got really got into uh, Mormon history, and Mormon theology. Cool. Um. Are there any uh, experiences from your mission that are sort of foundational or sort of pivotal moments that, that you think would be worth sharing? Well, I uh, I actually turned out at the time to have the most baptisms of anybody at the time, which was a measly 12, but that was big in Missouri. Missouri was very much like uh, Germany, as we were told. It was just very hard to find converts. But all those uh, all those converts came at the end when I was tracting. Uh, my companion and I were tracting. It was cold, and he wanted to go home. I said, you know what, let's just finish the street. So we got to the end of the street. Guy answers the door. It was wintertime, snow everywhere. Yeah, and we got to the end of the street, told the guy who we were, and he says, well, wonder why it took you so long come on in turns out he had uh, he and his family had visited temple square ages previously and at the time 
people would be given a, a box to check. You know, there was a little place they could sign a guest registry if they visited Temple Square. And these little pieces of paper got sent to the missions uh, near, you know, wherever people were from so that missionaries could follow up on them. And it took forever to get these little pieces of paper out there. And so this was maybe a year later. We're, we're tracking this guy. And so we taught his family. Then we t- started teaching his nieces. Then we taught their in-laws and their family. And we baptized all of them. And I was told a few years later that there's a stake in that town now. And it was not even, it was not even, there was, we, we came from a town, Newton, Iowa, where there was a branch, a tiny little branch. So we go out there and we track this town that's 19 miles away. And it turns out to be the stake center. So I thought that was a nice little story. Connie, Connie likes that one too because she makes her feel like her husband accomplished something. <laughs> <laughs> that is a cool story. You know, it's funny. Uh, nowadays, the missionaries get those texted to their phones. You know, almost almost instantaneously. Yeah, um, sure. when people fill that stuff out. So, <laughs> you know, I'm, I, I'd like to say that the two boys of the family that we that we initially tracked out, they both served missions and they had very successful missions. And so, uh, I like I like the idea that something I did rippled out like that, especially since it was uh, I was just weeks from going home, and uh, and so it felt good. Cool, cool. Well, thanks for for sharing that. So, um. You know, tell tell us a little bit about what sort of has happened in your life that has has culminated in you starting this blog. You mentioned earlier that uh, in an in, in institute you ran across uh, dialogue, and that seemed to have an impact on you. What are what are some other influences that have shaped your your current perspective on Mormonism? Well, you know, I have been asked before um, if I had a, a, a trial of faith. And uh, I don't really think I have. But well, you mentioned dialogue, and that brings it to mind. Because uh, I, I think one reason I didn't have a trial of faith, oh gosh, sometime after my mission, I, I decided I was going to set out and read the entire Journal of Discourses. I, I came across 26 volumes, and they were selling for $1,200. And I got a hold of a, a set for $600, which was an excellent price. And in those days, I had money, believe it or not. And so I bought the set, and I started reading. And I, I, I remember having heard on my mission that the church discourages us from reading the Journal of Discourses, but I never knew why. And uh, I know now why, because there are so many uh, so many. Uh, doctrines in there that we that we no longer teach and the, the church is trying to forget about sweep under the rug but one of the things i found most interesting was were these debates between brigham young and orson pratt uh orson brigham young would go up there and uh give a talk at conference and orson pratt would come along right behind him and explain where he was wrong and then brigham young would stand up and say brother pratt is wrong and they would have these wonderful theological debates and discussions and the and the congregation had the benefit of of sorting these things out and the interesting thing is uh no one at the time thought of Brigham Young as the prophet seer and revelator he was the president of the church so there was no stigma in uh in telling him that you know he's full of hooey he was held as an authority figure let me put it that way but it wasn't like today where no one would go up against and, and contradict the prophet because uh it's it's considered that every word that utters out of his mouth is from the word of god but in those days uh 
uh, when anyone spoke of the prophet, they were referring to the late Joseph Smith, and that's the way it was for decades and decades through through uh, George Q. Cannon and Wilfred Woodruff. The prophet was never uh, the, the president was never referred to as a prophet. And Brigham Young himself admitted, he said, "I'm not a prophet like Joseph or Daniel, but I'm a Yankee guesser." And by that, he meant he's got common sense. He can figure things out. He can he can uh, extrapolate from the scriptures using his Yankee. Yankee wisdom. So it was, it was a different time, and I was I was fascinated by that. And uh, the other thing about uh, dialogue, uh, being in the institute library, it, it was it was such a wonderful resource because the the thing about dialogue dialogue created a place where members could talk outside of the official channels and discuss things and look at doctrines and look at the the, the things that seemed like paradoxes and there's a lot one of the things that i find fascinating about mormon theology is so much of it is paradoxical and uh, one of the one of the great paradigm-changing books in my life was Paul Toscano. Paul and Margaret Toscano wrote a book called Strangers in Paradox, in which they brought together all these paradoxes, but showed that you can still be a believing Latter-day Saint and not let these little things bother you. So, it it was a fascinating book. And uh, I guess what I'm getting around to here is I never had that crisis of faith because I was never caught by surprise. I've been reading the problems and the challenges in the church and the and the difficult doctrines and reading about them for so long and uh, and reading about them by believing Latter Day Saints who were writing in dialogue and Sunstone magazines and uh, we were airing these things. But it wasn't the sort of thing that made you go, oh my gosh, that's awful. I'm quitting. So now we, we come to today where we have the internet suddenly launched and, and true believing Mormons who, were, who spent their lives just you know, being, allowing themselves to be told what to do and what to believe – Suddenly finding them, finding out that the church has skeletons in its closet and and difficulties and challenges and and screwy doctrines and screwy teachings and screwy policies and a lot of them are looking at that and, and throwing up their hands and running off. I just don't. I never found that necessary. I I, I find that I, I I find that being a member of church and appreciating the gospel are two different things and i think uh, that's probably uh it brings us to the the biggest sticking point with with those who are being surprised for the first time too many members of the church have grown up with a with a testimony of the church they know the church is true they know that you know their their loyalty is to the church instead of to the religion the teachings the gospel the doctrines and and so they have not separated in their minds that there is a difference between actual doctrine and church policy. So church policy can be mistaken, it can be an error, it can be it needs to be corrected sometimes, and it often is. But if 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 that's your uh, reference point uh, that the church is true, then uh, you know you're kind of an accident waiting to happen. I think. So uh, real quick, Rock. So I think that's a really you know, sort of foundational paradigm 
that you promote is is making a distinction between the church and by church, you know, I'll let you elaborate on that. But I think uh, by church you mean the inst- uh, we're talking about the institution, you know, that's headquartered in Salt Lake, making a, a distinction between that and and the gospel. So you know, I really want our listeners to understand exactly what you mean by that. So would you mind elaborating a little bit more? You know, it's it's very difficult to to talk about the church because often in conversation different people will have a different idea of what what's meant so the lord defines the church as all those who repent and come unto me so basically that's all the people that's the members but today we 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 consider the church with a capital c church this corporate institutional church and so we have we've we've dichotomize the church into two parts. There's the leaders, the managers, and that's who we consider the church. And then there's the members down below, and it's our job to uh, take orders from from management. That's not the way it was in Joseph Smith's time, and I don't believe it's the way the Lord intended it to be. But it's very important to differentiate between the church and the gospel. The church is an institution whose job it is to deliver the, the message to us. So that's what the, that's what the church is there for. It publishes the Book of Mormon. It it uh, it provides materials. It provides resources. It it, it has a, a, an obligation to take care of the temporal needs of the members. So that's one thing the institutional church is for. But the gospel itself that's the religion. That's the beliefs. Now I take very seriously the, the difference. The, the thing that makes us different from all other religions, and that is our belief in divine revelation. What makes this church different from any other church is that we believe that the Lord himself has revealed things. So, taking that as our model, we have got, we, it's important not to just accept anything that that doesn't come through revelation. So in other words, what makes a Mormon teaching valid in my eyes is is did it come through Christ? Did it come through revelation or is it in the Book of Mormon? Because the Book of Mormon we're told contains the fullness of the gospel, so we've got that. And then we have additional revelation that came through Joseph Smith. Now anything else, conference talks, uh policy it doesn't have the same validity as something that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And so I have a I have a difference of opinion with some members who worship the church, worship the leaders, idolize the leaders, and see the leaders as uh, some type of supernatural superhumans who know more than we do. And they, they don't always know more. Than we do, uh, they're not. They're not any smarter. They have a job. They have a calling, and their their position is to be our servants. But what we've done now is we we've turned them into our bosses, our supervisors, our managers, and and then we we hang on every word. And then when some of these words, uh, some of these teachings turn out to change or to be rejected later by the leadership. Some members don't know what to do. That's because their focus has been in the wrong place. Our focus should be on Christ and the Holy Ghost. What we should do is we should look to the Scriptures first, look to Revelation second, and of course, this most most uh, Revelation comes through Scripture. 
and then we should validate what we what we've read in the scriptures by the power of the Holy Ghost. Now, if if a if a church leader gives a talk in conference that makes sense, uh, and a lot of it does. I mean, a lot of it, a lot of the things that these guys were teaching is good, solid stuff. But it's not necessarily a revelation, and we need to differentiate between that and revelation. Because you can turn on uh, Christian radio or Christian TV and see a pastor from another church talking essentially about a lot of the same things that our guys are teaching in conference. And uh, so I just think it's, it's important to be able to tell the difference between a good teaching and an actual doctrine of the church. Now, this is not to say that you can't believe whatever you want in addition. You can. The wonderful thing about this religion is Joseph Smith said, said uh, you know, I don't, like, I don't like to be told what to believe. Uh, there was a fellow named Pelatiah Brown who got excommunicated for, a t- for believing false doctrine. And Joseph Smith, when he found out about that, he said, I don't like that. It smacks too much of the Methodists, where you have to believe a certain way or you get kicked out. Uh, so we are allowed to believe whatever we want, but at the same time, I think we need to be careful not to uh, not to uh, ascribe, you know, doctrine to something that is simply just uh, just an idea or an opinion. Uh, quick question, Rock. So, you know, what I hear you saying is that, you know, we we shouldn't hang on every word that church leaders say. That not everything they say is revelation and um you know i was thinking as you were as you were mentioning those things i i know if you you know corner down you know your average sort of you know mainstream orthodox devout mormon and asked him hey do you believe everything uh, the general authorities say that it's revelation i i don't think i think they would say no i i think they would say no and i think um, they would say stuff like, well, sometimes it's their opinion, sometimes it's revelation. And so I think a lot of those things aren't foreign concepts. So where do you think the disconnect is? Well, uh, there's a surprising number of people who believe that everything published in the Ensign of Scripture, everything, uh, everything that comes over the pulpit in general conference is Scripture. So, so there's a surprising number of people who cannot tell the difference between a good talk and a revelation from God. So the the problems the problems come when well, let's look for example, um, our actual doctrine as taught by Joseph Smith is that all weddings should be should take place in a public place. Now over the years, uh, we we introduced temple ceilings, which I'm all for. But a temple ceiling is a different ordinance than a wedding. The wedding should come first, and then the ceiling. The wedding is a public thing. As Joseph Smith said, it should be in a public place or a feast. and Everybody should be there, your nieces, nephews, children. It should not be, you know, performed in a closet, which is what's done in the temple. Later, you come over, you come back, and you go to the temple, and you have that marriage sealed. So first you have a marriage, then you have the marriage sealing. So you're sealing on, on, in heaven what has already taken place on earth. But what, what has happened uh, in the 60s, we, we began to conflate the two and uh, to the point where the temple marriage became, in the eyes of many people, the actual doctrine. And it's not. 
it's a policy and 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 if we're to take Joseph Smith at his at his word, that's not the way it should take place. I feel we should we, we by all means, uh, you know, I want to be sealed to my eternal mate, but uh, but the wedding should be a public celebration, and that's something that we are missing in this religion. I mean, most faiths will have a wedding. Uh, every now and then, and it brings everybody together, and it's a fun, great celebration, and kids and nephews and children, everybody's there, and it's we don't have that in our society, right? And and it's missing. Well, I think I think what I would anticipate uh, somebody how someone would respond to that is by saying something to the effect of that new revelation trumps old revelation, new policies. Trump old policies, and so th- that's the current policy, and so that's what we do. Well, cur- current revelation does trump old revelation, but first you have to show me that new revelation. And policy doesn't trump revelation. And once again, if we're going to be a, a church that is guided, we-, we say we are guided by Jesus Christ, that he is the head of this church. So if he's guiding the church, we should expect to hear from him now and then directly. We should be able to get some some uh, revelations that that are very clear. Uh, that the, When the prophet is speaking, that he's saying, I have a message from the Lord. The Lord wants you to know this. He can say, thus saith the Lord. He can do any variation of that, but that has always been a requirement. That that when the Lord has a message, that the prophet says, "Thus saith the Lord," or something to that effect. So policy certainly doesn't trump uh, uh, certainly doesn't trump uh, a revelation. And what we're what we're missing in the church today are revelations. And I I, I believe that uh, President Benson. Uh, hit the nail on the head when he said that this church is still under con- under condemnation because we have not taken the Book of Mormon seriously. We don't read it. We do not abide by its precepts. And a lot of the precepts in the Book of Mormon we're not abiding by. We're we're ignoring it. <clears throat> uh, you can find people all the time who would be completely surprised to learn that Moroni was warning of our day and our church and how this church would apostatize and fall away from the truth because they just don't know that's in there. But, uh, uh, Where is that in the Book of Mormon? Moroni 8. He's, he's saying, I speak to you. He's saying, I'm speaking to those who receive these things. So he's not talking about, now he's, he's addressing the Gentiles. One of the things that's confused Mormons is because but after we went to Utah, uh, Brigham Young started referring to the non-members as the Gentiles. In the Book of Mormon, it was understood that we were the Gentiles, those who received uh, this book. So Moroni is saying, I speak to you as if you are here and yet you are not. And then he goes on and he just lists these these shortcomings, and he says, "Why have you re- polluted the holy church of God? You know why? He's talking to us. He's not talking to the Protestants. He's not talking to the Catholics because they don't. That's the Catholic Church is not the holy church of God. This was the holy church of God. So we've diverted from the path, and and I think it's a simple thing to get back on. All we need to do is is look to the scriptures, and the scriptures tell us that." The only sure way to taste of that wonderful fruit is by clinging to the iron rod. If you're on that path, you're trying to go forward, hang on to that iron rod. That iron rod, Nephi tells us, is one thing. It's the word of God. 
And a lot, once again, talking about what people misunderstand about Scripture. I've had people tell me that they thought the, the iron rod meant follow the prophet and follow the church. That they thought, thought it meant the institutional church. No, it means the Word of God. That's the only sure way to stay on the path. Otherwise, we're always in danger of, of drifting off in the midst of darkness. So grab that rod and, and you know, go forward. So, my, my, my thing is, you know, let's Let's abide by the actual teachings, by the actual revelations from Jesus Christ. Let's look there first. There are policies that are harmless, and, there are, and a lot of policies are helpful. But let's not elevate those to the same, the same rank as, as a revelation from Jesus Christ himself. Because policies are, are little things we do to, to help this church run smoothly, but they should never butt up against a revelation. You know, this. Uh, we may not have enough time to discuss this here. If the real purpose of church leadership is not to sort of, um, I don't know, for lack of a better word, micromanage our, our righteousness, you know, how did we get to this point then? Have things not always been this way? Because here's, here's sort of the, and I'm, I guess I'm sort of asking the same question in a different way. I think a lot of members, if they perceive weaknesses, or if they perceive mistakes um, coming from Salt Lake or from church leaders, current or or in the past, I think they sort of they they follow this paradigm that well, yeah, they may be wrong. Um, for example, we can use uh, you know blacks in the priesthood as an example, where perhaps you know some of the leaders were misguided or they were influenced by their own uh, prejudices and bias biases, but. It's not our responsibility to mince and to dissect what the church leaders are, are pronouncing or issuing as policy. It's our job to be obedient because obedience is the first law of heaven. And so as long as we are obedient, we will be blessed even if what the leaders are asking us to do or teaching is incorrect. And so and I, I know that is a, that is a prevalent uh, concept that exists amongst uh, modern Mormon culture, and so what is your response to that notion or idea? Well, it's a false doctrine. There is no nowhere in Scripture where the Lord tells us to be obedient to church leaders. They they don't have a position of rank any higher than the rest of us. We are supposed to be the body of Christ. That means, uh, you know, the head does not say to the foot, "I have no need of you," and vice versa. Everybody is supposed to be equal under God's law. So this idea that we should not question the leaders or the, that they they are in positions above us, I trace that to uh, to our backgrounds. I'm a I'm a I don't remember how many generations Mormon. I go back to uh, Charles Law, who came across the plains from England with his wife and her two sisters, and. There were there were two types of people in the early church in the Nauvoo period, in the Missouri Nauvoo period. Uh, we were the types of Americans who gave as good as we got, and that's one of the reasons we had a lot of problems with our neighbors because it was a it was a the frontier America was a rough and tumble time, you know, where you had people like Mike Fink and Davy Crockett who didn't take no guff from anybody. Uh, there was a sense of independence. This is what made up the church in Ohio and Pennsylvania and uh, Missouri and Nauvoo largely were uh, this type of frontier American. 
by the time by the time of Joseph Smith's assassination, there were there's understood to have been about twenty thousand members of the church. Ten thousand of them went to Utah, and the popula- population of the pioneers who went to Utah was largely made up of uh, of English immigrants, English converts. And these were the lower classes in English, England, the servant classes. And these people were accustomed to, to taking orders. They were accustomed to... Uh, you know, to being servants and to to having that there were classes of people above them. So Brigham Young was ideally suited to lead such people because he led with an iron hand, iron fist. Well, I shouldn't say that. He was a very authoritarian, and they looked to him as to what to do next. Now, prior to that, Joseph Smith was telling people, "Don't look at me; think for yourself." But now we had a class of people who whose only life was as children. They had to be told what to do next. Then when you, when you bring in the, the Scandinavian converts who followed, you have, if, if, if you're familiar at all with uh, Garrison Keillor's Lake Wobegon stories, uh, he talks about the rural Minnesota farmers, good people, salt of the earth, but they didn't like to make waves. They didn't like confrontations. They also were accustomed to doing what they were told and they had the utmost respect for their religious leaders. So what you have is a combination of, of a servant class from England and, uh, and a similar class coming from Sweden and Norway and the Scandinavian countries, all ready-made to be obedient so we we see a shift in the church from from a libertarian um, individualistic community where everyone was understood to be an individual, but they they worked together as a community. They they joined in as a community, and then you had the Utah Church, which became an uh, more an authoritarian, and so we 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 divided into classes right there in Utah, and you know. Which been this this attitude has been handed down. Well, Brigham Young would send somebody out to, uh, you know, he'd, he'd tell some family, the Lord wants you to go down to Cedar City, the Lord wants you to go to Santa Clara and settle this. And these people would go down and leave their friends and never see them again because Brigham Young needed the borders of Deseret laid out. Uh, but I don't know of any instance where these people wrote in their journals, the Lord told me that I needed to go here. They just said, Brigham Young told me, and so I did what I was told. So what we have is this, these people who did what they were told, and that's what we have today. And we, we have too many members looking for leadership instead of to, to the Holy Ghost in the Scriptures, where Nephi says, the Holy Ghost will tell us everything we need to do. Now we're looking to conference talks, and we don't bother with the Holy Ghost. We're leaving the Holy Ghost out of the equation because, let's face it, if you've got this mindset that the leaders know best, why would you check with the Holy Ghost? Why would you pray about it? Right. Yeah, it is sort of a, I think it can be viewed as sort of a strange (laughs) circular argument where, you know, you pray, the church leaders issue some sort of uh, pronouncement or, or policy and you know we're we're told not to just 
take things on blind faith. However, at the same time, if we pray and we get an answer that is um, that conflicts with what the brethren ha- have issued, we've either gotten the wrong answer and need to keep asking, or we're being led astray, or we must not be living righteously. And I think that's definitely um, a sentiment that at least I was taught. Uh, that I was taught growing up. Well, I think the only time that would be an issue is if if you you decided that you you had your own revelation and that you were going to lead the church, you know. And uh, personal revelation isn't like that. The church leadership has its job. We have, uh, you know, and and we have our own lives to to receive revelation about. I don't have the right to receive revelation for anybody else. I don't have a right to tell somebody else, you know, the Lord has told me to tell you this. Yeah, that's not how it works. And so uh, personal revelation is something that we should all be striving for and and receiving. And I'm, I'm now hearing, every now and then I'll hear some... Uh, some grumblings of discontent if if something like that is mentioned that uh, as if these people believe that you know we have no right to seek revelation that's the prophet's job and it is and it would be nice if we saw revelation from him now and then but like i say i don't think it's any fault of his i think the lord is waiting for us to start to stop stop worshiping these idols these icons of flesh and start looking to him as the head of the church. Because in reality, as much as we might want to say, you know, Jesus Christ is the head of the church, if I was to say, could you name the head of the church today? You'd probably instantly say Thomas S. Monson. Because that's the way we think. We don't think of Jesus as, as guiding this church. We think of Thomas Monson as guiding the church and the brethren. So I think there's a, I think there's danger. Uh, this... this uh, this mantra that we're beginning to hear that there is safety in following the brethren, I think that's very dangerous. That sounds Luciferian to me. That's, that seems to me exactly the plan that Lucifer proposed in, in heaven, where he said, there's safety, you follow me, I'll get you back, you'll, I'll take care of you, you'll get back safe, everything will be hunky-dory. And, and that's, uh, that's what we're seeing today in the church. We're seeing people who actually believe that that's the way we should, we should do it. Yeah, I think I think there is a a perspective that to do something that's contrary or stands in defiance with what a church leader said is 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 very much akin to standing in defiance to God. And I think and you know before you respond to that because I know you want to respond to that, I think a lot of people, you know, I I remember growing up with the understanding that hey, you know, President uh, Benson or President Hunter or President Hinckley, they have me- weekly meetings with Jesus in the temple. And then you, you know, I don't know if you remember this video that came out. I think it was in the, either in the late 90s, or early 2000s. It was called Special Witnesses of Christ. And it was basically President Hinckley, his counselors, and all 12 apostles each taking a turn, um, just kind of bearing their testimony. It's actually a really really great, powerful video, but, you know, over and over again, it's repeated. They allude to this special witness they have, you know, as this, as if they have, you know, this special knowledge or special connection. And that, and so I think when, when members hear that and they, and they hear sort of the, 
the mythology surrounding, you know, meetings with Jesus in the temple, you know, I think it, it frightens them to, 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 to think contrary to what these men think, because, you know, just like the whole watchman on the towers analogy, they sit in a place and have a perspective that, that we aren't granted. And so they may see things that we don't, and they have a, a special connection to God and they have the, the keys of the priesthood. And so there's, there's all this, um, you know, sort of momentum that feeds into that, into that perspective. What do you, how do you feel about that? Well, I think it's, uh, having the keys of prophets seen revelator is one thing, but, uh, the next thing, the other half of that is Jesus himself has got to decide that he's going to exercise those keys through the prophet. So when the, when those keys aren't exercised, uh, you know, it's, it's not enough to have this office and this title uh, where, where, where we're told that he has the, the keys of prophet, see, and revelator. If he doesn't prophesy, he doesn't see anything, and he doesn't reveal anything. And I... I some people may be just horrified to hear me say this, uh, but I'm not putting the man down. I'm saying it's it's Jesus' decision whether he's going to speak through the prophet or not. And we've got to start we've got to start believing what we used to preach, which was by their fruits ye shall know them. A prophet is only a prophet when he speaks as a prophet. And if a prophet never speaks as a prophet, then then there's something wrong. And what we need to do is try and figure out what do we need to do to set this ship right again. And basically, we need to start believing in Christ. We need to go back to the basics of our religion and, and stop looking to the leaders for the answers. Um, I find it interesting what you mentioned about the special witnesses for Christ. And I, I used to believe that, that also, that uh, because apparently the calling of an apostle is that he's supposedly a personal witness of Christ. He's met, met Jesus, he's spoken to him face to face, and now he can go and witness that. But then if you ask these guys, can you tell me something about your experience, they'll say something, they'll brush it off by saying, well, it's too personal, it's too sacred. But that's not the way the apostles of old ever said it. They, they preached it from the rooftops. They didn't say, well, you know, I really can't tell you anything about my, my visit with Jesus Christ because it's too sacred. They told you. So, what I'm getting from that is it's not really happening, and they're just sort of hemming and hawing and saying, well, you know, uh, it's just too sacred to talk about, meaning I don't have anything to talk about. Okay. Well, I think um, I think those are, are good responses, and definitely, I think, food for thought for, for a lot of our listeners. And so, you know, going back, going back to the, to the blog itself, I think you've done a good job kind of explaining your perspective. I think what you've described is, is a pretty prevalent uh, sort of theme that, that sort of permeates a lot of the, the posts that you make on your blog. So who is, who is your audience? Uh, who do you hope to reach um, by, by uh, writing Pure Mormonism? Well, you know, I, I started out just by laying down some thoughts on paper because basically, you know, part of this was my own process of repentance. And by that I mean, 
I believe I was believing the wrong things most of my life. Uh, not everything that I believed was wrong, but some of the things I I believed in were not doctrinal. I call it pure Mormonism for a reason. My, and my wife thought that's just an awfully pretentious uh, title. You know who you who you think you are. <laughs> Right, <laughs> Bruce, Bruce R. McConkie. But what, what I'm trying to get across here is, is there's Mormonism, and then there's pure Mormonism. And the pure Mormonism are the, the actual teachings. And uh, In my mind, that consists of the Book of Mormon, the revelations through, through Joseph Smith, and then to a lesser degree, the teachings of Joseph Smith. So I like reading, uh, I like reading the book, uh, the teachings of the prophet Joseph Smith. Not everything in there is a revelation, but since he is the founding prophet of our faith, I think he has a degree of validity. And the interesting thing is, Jesus was always calling him on the carpet for making errors and making mistakes and doing the wrong thing and saying the wrong thing. So he was a very humble man because he he published these these. Uh, these chastisements and that's something i i don't think we will ever see in the modern church because there's there's it's very important i think to the leadership today to to show unity of thought so they want to they need to leave the impression for the members that they are all of one mind and i think that goes back to the idea that the church is true and if the if there's any disagreements, then it, it might it might uh, show some cracks or might lead people to think, well, maybe the church isn't entirely true. Well, and, well, and the fact of the matter is, the church isn't true. It's the gospel that's true. And when we get to the t- to that, and I use various terms. I, I'll, I'll say the gospel, the teachings, the doctrines, the tenets of our faith. What it comes down to is some of it's true. And some of it isn't, and so fine. But and and it's okay to cling to some things that aren't absolutely necessary, uh, you know, for our salvation. But it's also important to be able to differentiate things that are are important and things that aren't. And you you mentioned, uh, you know, disagreeing with the prophet is like disagreeing with God. Uh, that takes us to. President Hinckley's talk to the youth where he was musing about uh, earrings and, and tattoos. He was saying, and basically, really, he was musing. He said, I don't know why you people, and I'm paraphrasing pretty close. He says, I don't know why any any woman, any girl would want to have more than one earring. I, he, I, if, I, if I recall correctly, he didn't say you should not have more than one earring, or the Lord, he definitely didn't say, Lord doesn't want you to have more than one earring. He just said, I don't know why you kids are this way. You know, you kids with your hair and your clothes and your eight-track tapes, you know. (laughs) (laughs) So he was just basically a nice, avuncular old man talking to the kids and saying, you know, really, that's not really a good idea. And I agree with him. I agree with him. I don't like tattoos, but... I don't judge somebody who has a tattoo. That's their business. I don't want tattoos on me. When I say I don't like tattoos, I don't like tattoos on me, and I don't like piercings on me. So, what happened with that little talk was it spread to where it became doctrine. And it, Elder Bednar gave a talk, I think at Rick's College, where he told approvingly about a young man who he knew who had broken off the engagement with his fiance because this girl had two earrings in her ear and the prophet had told her 
had told us that she should only have one. And so this young man decided this wasn't the girl for him because she was not going to be obedient to the prophet. And Bednar is telling this story approvingly. I mean, here's here's a girl that got dumped on a point that isn't even doctrinal. And all I can say is that is the luckiest girl in the church because that that spending a lifetime with that guy would have been insufferable. <laughs> so, we, 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 it's, it's, we, we, you know, another thing is, uh, the, the, the so-called prohibition against R-rated movies. Most of us believe that, uh, the, the church has come down and commanded us not to see R-rated movies. Well, what happened was President Benson gave a talk to the Iranic priesthood years ago, advising, and this was at the, uh, this was during a time of, terrible raj there was porkies and fast times at ridgemont high and he was advising these young men that these types of movies weren't good for them and i say kudos to him because kids need to be told sometimes look you got to draw the line at these kinds of movies otherwise you know and this is i think this is a side effect of having so much dependency upon being told because if you're not told then you think well that's okay you know so anyway <clears throat> That talk to the ironic priesthood spread throughout the church to where most members think that we're not allowed to see R-rated movies. And because of that, they've deprived themselves of really fine films like Braveheart and The Passion of Christ. I can't believe it. When The Passion of Christ came out, so many more members said, I'd like to see it, but it's R-rated. I mean, my gosh. I, I don't know what to say to that. <laughs> <laughs> right. So the point is, there never was a prohibition against it. It certainly didn't come from God. It was simply good advice. And we take this good advice and we turn them into commandments, and we don't even think it through. Most of the people who think about R-rated, you know, something like we shouldn't have R-rated movies or we shouldn't wear more than one earring in our ear, they don't think that this is God doesn't want me to. They don't take it any further than the leaders don't want me to. And that, to me, is idol worship. And it's no wonder people call us a cult, because those are the earmarks of a cult. When you don't even, you don't even consider whether or not it's, it's okay with God, you stop at the prophet and say, well, the prophet said I shouldn't, and that's good enough for me. So, Gotcha. Well, I got some more, some sort of... Uh I'm going to throw some <laughs> some unique Mormon maxims at you and see kind of how you react to them, okay? Okay. Um, and I think this will uh, – I hope you don't feel like we're kicking the dead horse here, but I think these are important um, uh, things to talk about because they're phrases that, that I hear a lot um, in the context of this sort of discussion. Uh, number one is... May I, may I just say, Micah, I yes. just got really agitated there. And a lot of people think I'm a bitter, disgruntled member of the church, and I'm not. I'm not bitter, <laughs> I'm, I'm not bitter at all. I love this religion. But I get agitated sometimes at the foolishness and the vain traditions that people want to follow. So I just needed to stick that in there so anybody out there listening doesn't think I'm a real jerk, which I probably am. <laughs> well, I don't, think, I don't think you're a jerk, and I don't think you're bitter. <laughs> you're passionate, right? You're passionate. <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm over here. You know, I'm half Ephraim, half Judah. So the Jew in me is over here, throwing my arms up and gesticulating wildly. So <laughs> I make an interesting preacher, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so 
Number one, if the Book of Mormon is true, then Joseph Smith is a prophet. And if Joseph Smith is a prophet, then that means the church is true. How do you feel about that? If the Book of Mormon is true, Joseph Smith is a is a was given the gift of translating it. I, I would I I call him a prophet, but I don't. I wouldn't necessarily say that that makes him a prophet. That makes him uh, a seer. Not that he isn't a prophet, also. But the second part of that, of course, is it does not carry. That's a logical fallacy because if Joseph Smith was a prophet. It doesn't make the next guy in line a prophet, that, because then you'd have to say, well, that means String. William String was a prophet, or Joseph Smith III was a prophet, or uh, any number of the others. Because we can't lay any more claim to line of authority than any of these other guys, in my opinion. Now, I used to think so. I used to think, you know. But the priesthood resides within the people it's not an authority it's not i've pre it's not given to a priest class that is above us and i'm i'm wandering off topic again but um well that's uh, a no, whole other we could have a whole whole podcast about <laughs> about yeah, that no, that topic no, for sure is, uh, is uh once again uh, is every subsequent prophet given the keys of prophet seer and revelator yeah he has the keys that doesn't mean those keys are in operation they might be they might not be i'd like to see a revelation then i know if they are and if i saw a revelation i would sit up and pay attention and the next thing i would do is i would take it to the lord and, and get a witness from the holy ghost but we they're not giving us anything to even pray about they're just not giving they're not even they're not even claiming to have revelations they're allowing they're allowing this belief to percolate that they are uh, the wise elders of the church. And so, if we don't start asking questions, as long as we're going to allow them uh, that privilege, it'll continue. And they'll continue to have the chief seats in the synagogue, as the scripture says, uh, where they sit up there in the cushy seats and look down upon the rest of us, and they are men of privilege. Okay, next question. Okay. Uh, number two, whether it is by my voice or the voice of my servants, it is the same. Now, that is a, a frequently misquoted scripture that was referring, it was, it was a revelation given through Joseph Smith to Luke Johnson and three others who were setting off to, into the wilderness, I think, to serve a mission among the Indians. And the key qualifier in that, pray, in that scripture is, when moved upon by the Holy Ghost, there they will be the voice of the Lord, the, the Spirit. And <clears throat> it's interesting that we are told we're given the same scripture as missionaries setting out, we're, and we're told that uh, you know, by, when moved upon by the Holy Ghost, we will be the voice of the Lord, the will of the Lord, the word of the Lord, etc. But we don't ever, for a moment, while we're out there being regular guy missionaries, think that that we. Uh, you know, every utterance that we say is the the word of the Lord, the voice of the Lord. I have had situations where I've sat in a discussion and I've spoken through the Spirit, and I know that I have been a vessel of the Lord. But uh, once again, it's a qualified statement. When moved upon by the Holy Ghost, and I don't I don't consider a conference talk that was prepared in advance. 
usually by staff members, and then read from a teleprompter in a meeting. I don't consider that moved upon by the Holy Ghost. When you're moved upon by the Holy Ghost, you're going to toss away your notes, and you're going to speak extemporaneously, and your audience is probably going to know it. Okay. Okay, you ready for the next one? Ready. The prophet will never lead the church astray. Well, of course, that's a completely false doctrine, and it is not supported anywhere in Scripture. Uh, in fact, DNC 107 provides a way for the prophet, for the president of the church, to to uh, to be, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Not excommunicated, but to be dismissed is the only word I, uh, that comes uh, for transgression. So why would why would the Lord give us a, a method by which we can remove the president of the church from his place if if he can never lead the church astray? Now, as as you know, that uh, that was just something that uh, Wilfred Woodruff said. And the background of that was coming up before 1890, George Q. Cannon, uh, there's an interesting book out that's uh, called The uh, Unpublished Revelations of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And it's got revelation after revelation by Woodruff and Cannon and Snow. And they're, they're saying, the Lord is saying through them that plural marriage will never be discontinued. It's not going to happen. Never. And then the next thing you know, Wilfred Woodruff blinks. So he's got to say something. So he's telling the he tells the church, "Look, don't worry about it. Everything's under control. The Lord won't let me lead you astray. Go back to sleep." So we've taken that little white lie that that Woodruff uttered, and we've we've turned that into a doctrine. It's not a doctrine. It's it, you cannot find anywhere where Jesus said that. It would have been one thing if Woodruff said, Thus saith the Lord, my prophet will never lead the church astray. But he didn't. He was just talking as himself. He was just saying, look, it's not in the cards, don't worry about it. So this is, and this is, of course, uh, probably one of the most dangerous heresies in the church, because it it is taking taking the members away from Scripture, away from Revelation, away from the Holy Ghost, and 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 Giving, uh, causing them to lean on the arm of flesh, and the arm of flesh. These guys are made of flesh. I don't know if uh, most people have noticed, but President Monson and, and the twelve apostles are fallible human beings, capable of error. And yet, I saw somebody quote that scripture that we should lean not on the arm of flesh. That's why we must always follow the prophet. So you know, you just want to sigh. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, so here's uh, here's another question I have, Rock. So the things that you discuss in your blog and, and the perspective that you promote here, um, how is it how is it valuable uh, to to modern Mormonism? Well, I'll tell you the biggest problem I see is we're losing members by the tens of thousands a year, not ten thousand a year, by the tens of thousands. And that's not even counting the the people who slip in inactivity. These are people who've made a conscious decision that I don't want to I don't believe it anymore. I don't want to be a member. So many of them uh have their their names removed and, and many just decide to up and quit and they don't say anything. But I, I feel I you know I, I yesterday I just listened to your uh interview with Greg Prince and it was wonderful and if anybody really wants to know what makes me tick just listen to what Greg Prince has to say and my views and beliefs are, are 
are very much in line with his own. We see a problem in the church, and yet we see people leaving rather than realizing. I think. I think. I think what we need to do when we see a problem in the institutional church, things that we disagree with, uh, the, the City Creek Mall is a prime example. A lot of people, that's caught a lot of members up short. People are looking at it and saying, is this really what we should be doing? What, what you know, what she should be doing with the Lord's funds? And especially at a time like this, uh, at a time of economic downturn, I, I see that move as not only foolish, but bordering on stupid. But what we see here is we see people saying, well, that's it, and I'm leaving. Instead, we should look at that and say, okay, you know what? Maybe we need to look at the leadership as a little less relevant to our lives than what we used to think it was. You know, stop bowing down to them. Stop looking to them for uh, advice. Stop. Stop uh, feeling like we owe them allegiance or obedience. Uh, I I consider myself a devout member of the church. I love this religion. I love the the gospel. I love the tenets. But I I don't I, I don't see the leadership of the church in Salt Lake City as particularly relevant in my life. So I let them go off in their way and plow their own furrow the way they're going to do it. There's not much I can do. I'm not going to try and change them. I'm not going to start my own church i just say you know the church is the people so let's just start acting like members of the body of christ and and uh treat each other with kindness and compassion that's what pure mormonism is uh pure mormonism as defined by jesus is do unto others as you would have others do unto you and joseph smith added something to that he said the grand fundamental is the grand fundamental of mormonism is friendship so basically let's be kind to one another you know like like uh, ted bill and ted's great adventure the mantra should be be excellent to each other that's all we need to do well we put we don't need to worry about what they're doing in Salt Lake with this big 28-story building that's on the front of the building is labeled the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Well, that's not the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I'm the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. You are the Church of Jesus Christ. Everyone in our local ward is the Church of Jesus Christ. I'd like to see wards have more autonomy. Instead of, instead of taking orders from Salt Lake City and sending all the money to Salt Lake City... And then taking, uh, you know, and then, then getting a percentage back. I think it would be nice if the churches, if the wards began acting like a church, like a local congregation again. And all that stopped in like 1961, 62. Uh, you can learn about that through Damon Smith's uh, research. So, cool. and we uh, obviously people can learn, you know, get into much further depth about all these topics. And I know, uh, you know, we could. <laughs> Again, another thing we could devote a whole podcast to is uh, something like City Creek. Um, but I think if people want to learn um, learn more about some of the things you've discussed here, they can always go to your blog. And uh, we'll post links um, on our website uh, and just so people can, can hear it. It's uh, uh, puremormonism.blogspot.com is where you can find uh, Rock's blog. Um, before we wrap up, I just want to say that even though it's obvious that some of the points that Rock has made here uh, could be considered controversial, and I think to some, 
borderline blasphemous. But the reason I think Rock's perspective is so valuable today in modern Mormonism is because I think that many of us were raised within a paradigm that the institutional church and the gospel were two names for the same thing. The church and the gospel have become very intertwined with each other. And the reason that can be problematic is because if someone experiences a conflict with the institution, it is very easy for that to spill over into a conflict with the gospel. And I want to be clear that I'm not trying to say that there aren't valid reasons for becoming disaffected with Mormonism or the gospel of Jesus Christ, but I do think that it could be a mistake to reject Mormonism because of someone's dissatisfaction with the institution. So, so I appreciate Rock's perspective for that reason. And before we wrap up, Rock, I wanted to give you an opportunity. We've already had a chance to, to sort of circle around your perspective and to discuss it a little bit. Um, how have these discoveries had an effect on your personal relationship with Mormonism? For most of my life in the church, I thought I was doing my part by fulfilling my assignments and my service projects and things. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's a very interesting thing, this uh, baptism of fire. We've, I've read in so many leaders of the church saying, well, you know, we don't, the baptism of fire is really the still small voice and, uh, and, it's something that comes upon us gradually over time that we build our testimonies. But everything I was reading in the scriptures about the baptism of fire was, you know, you know when it happens, it's like knocks you over with a ton of bricks. And like Enos, so I had my own Enos moment five years ago, February 2007. And after, after reading about all these things, I decided I was going to lay down on the floor and prepare myself uh, uh I wasn't expecting the baptism of fire at this time, but I wanted to lay down and think about it, you know. Because this baptism of fire, which I think is the same thing as uh, experiencing a mighty change, uh, although I haven't even researched enough, they might be two separate things. But what happened was, I used to be, if the world is divided into givers and takers, I used to be a taker. And, well, I should back up and tell you about it. So I'm laying on the floor, and I'm put a pillow under my head, and I just sort of want to think about this and prepare myself and figure out how I can experience this mighty change, how I can get this baptismal fire, and boom! It came all over me. And it was like, uh, it was when the, the best description I can give you is Enos's. You know, Enos prayed night and day. He wanted, he wanted this experience. And suddenly it came upon him, and he said, Lord, how is it done? That's basically... That was the suddenly I really knew that my sins were forgiven me, and I knew that God and angels were rooting for me, cheering me on on the other side, and that that's how they see us. They are not over there waiting for us. God is not on the other side waiting for us to trip up so he can exact a punishment. God is looking, God is just basically, he's the best cheerleader you have, and he, he, when we make a mistake, we don't really have to put ourselves in sackcloth and ashes. We just basically God is asking us, "All right, did you learn anything? Yeah, okay, good. Move on. Let's go. Keep going. Keep going. You can make it." And this baptism of fire 
is uh, incredible, and it's one of the things that so many of us miss. I, I mean, look at me. I was raised in the church, served a mission, sealed in the temple, blah, 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 yada, 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 and I never witnessed this great experience that we're all supposed to be entitled to have. Why don't we get it? Because we don't seek it. Why don't we seek it? Because we're told it's not really there. It doesn't really exist. It's not really what we what we think it is. It's just a still small voice whispering in our ear. No, it's a it's a it's a burning of the bosom. It's a it's life changing. And what it did for me is it transformed me into someone as whoever who was in the scripture who said i had no desire to do anything but do good continually and i now i give and i serve and i i i i seek opportunities you know i i pray every time i go out that the lord will provide some homeless person for me to help and he just never let me down there's always somebody out there i can give a few bucks to i i don't want to miss an opportunity We are missing the gifts of the Spirit in our day. What attracted the Latter-day Saints to Nauvoo and the early church was not... Joseph Smith hadn't told his story of the first vision. It's, it was astounding to me to learn most saints in that day had never heard about the first vision. They never heard that story. What brought them to Nauvoo was the incredible gifts of the Spirit. There were healings. There were speaking, speaking of, in tongues. Now, if anything like that happened in a meeting today, we would roll our eyes and cuckoo and, and quietly escort that person from the stand. But that's what we had. Whatever it was this church used to have, we've lost. I'm beginning to get a taste for it again. So when I say that this blog that I've created is a part of my repentance, it's also, you know, I I never like to say this, but my wife, Connie, told me, you know, you really shouldn't be shy about telling people that you are inspired to write these things. So I'll, I'll, because I, I, I feel that's a little bit presumptuous, like bragging. But when I, when I have a, a post running around through my it rattles around in my head for days until it gets to the point where I can't sleep and I got to get up and just type it out. Uh, I, I'm not, I'm not a good writer. I don't, I don't know this stuff. So, uh, but the Lord is providing some things that He wants said. Now they're out there for whoever, whoever you know. And I've actually prayed. I've said, Father, you know, please send this out to whoever deserves to see it and the 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 reaction has been astounding uh, i'm not by any means the only blogger writing about these topics but we're, what we're seeing now is a groundswell of members who are realizing that something is missing in the in our religion something that we're supposed to have isn't there and, and the, the, in my view, that's the gifts of the Spirit. That's why church meetings are boring. Church shouldn't be boring. Damon Smith, in his recent uh, seminar, and it's called uh, Cultural... What is it? Uh, the, uh, a Cultural History of the Book of Mormon. He, he mentioned that it's a shame that our church meetings should be are the most boring part of our religion. And they are. I get much more out of reading the scriptures or reading uh, the church books or reading the words of Joseph Smith than I do uh, hearing somebody go up on the stand reciting, you know, reading from the ensign some conference talk that, that, in, that 
in turn is quoting some other leader of the church. And that's uh, another sore spot I have with conferences. These talks, they tend to quote each other in circles. I'd like to see them quote the Lord uh, directly. You know, I'd really like to see a revelation. I do not believe that, uh, you know, I'm not one of these guys that says, well, you know, it's not going to happen. I'm waiting for it to happen. But it doesn't happen. What they do is they quote each other in the most dry way, and uh, I just like to, I, I love to see the prophet get up there and say, brothers and sisters, the Lord has a message for you. He's asked me to convey this. Boom. You know, let's get something. Let's 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 bring this church back to life. We didn't have 20,000 members of the church living in the Nauvoo and surrounding areas because because that three-hour block was so enticing. There was something bringing them there. And it was it was amazing. Uh, my religion, and this is why I love it, my religion, since I had this epiphany, my religion is so mind-expanding. There is so much to know and so much to learn. I'm immersed in it these days, more than I've ever been in my life. Uh, it, it's, it's interesting that there are some people who call me bitter or disgruntled when I'm not. I, I love the Book of Mormon. I love the scriptures. I love the expand. When you read some of the things that Joseph Smith taught about the universe and the cosmology and about how it all works, he he was only able to put it in words that you know, so the simplest words that he could. But we're beginning to understand now with with more understanding of. Uh, quantum physics and quantum mechanics and other things that there's astounding uh, whatever the universe is made of this ether or the neutrinos or whatever something out there that is embodying everything and it's the spirit of God and it permeates you and me and the planets and this desk and everything and it's just coming in and out of us and if we tap into it our lives could be magical. Okay, I guess that's all I have to say. <laughs> Rock, that was awesome. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I actually think that's a that's a great place to stop. And um, again, people can read more of Rock's thoughts at puremormonism.blogspot.com. Um, we encourage our listeners to uh, go to a thoughtfulfaith.org and uh, comment on. Uh, this podcast where we can continue the discussion and I'm sure rock will check in and, and interact with our audience there. Sure. will. yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, rock Wabern, everybody, thank you so much. Thank you, Michael. Bye. Bye. Come the fount of every blessing to my heart to sing the grace. Thank you for joining us today on a thoughtful faith. To discuss this podcast, check us out at athoughtfulfaith.org. The music from this podcast was generously donated by Lisa Frazier. Hear more from her at lisafrazier.com. Thank you.
precious blood Oh, to grace How great a debtor Daily I'm constrained to be Let thy goodness Lie like a fetter Bind my wandering heart to be Prone to Thy courts above 